just at the start that when it comes to money matters, I have been on a learning journey all of my own. I, I, I don't stand up here as a person who has completely wired this subject by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, for so many, many years, I think wisdom in this area of my own life eluded me. Uh, For many years, Amy and I have lived in a lovely home in one of the nice communities in our area. We've had uh, many new and lovely things uh, filling that home up. We had a pretty well-established pattern of going on splendid trips that we were very sure were extremely good for us and, of course, for our kids. We looked around and we saw that we were uh, living pretty much like most of the other people in our neighborhood, most of the other people with whom we socialized. But what the people in our neighborhood and around us could not see, and we finally had to see very closely, is that we had gotten ourselves into serious, serious trouble. In order to keep up the lifestyle that we'd come to believe was just normal, we'd maxed out a whole string of credit cards. I was staying up late at night, filling out those long forms that the, uh, that the banks were so charitably sending me to help me with my credit issues by giving me more credit and credit cards. I was moving our debt back and forth between these various accounts like the proverbial P in the old shell game, only the P just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger till there was no shell that could possibly hold it any longer. It was all that we could do just to pay the minimum payments on those cards. The debt that we had accumulated was wrecking not just our financial life, but our family life in a real way. It was leading to tremendous stress and anxiety in both Amy and myself. I was tossing and turning. I know she was too. We were tooth on tooth toward each other in many cases because of the pressure of financial concerns. And I got to the point where my most fervent prayer was that God would perform some kind of miracle to get me out of this hole. God, you did it for Jed Clampett. You know, let me strike oil when I'm out gardening this afternoon. Or Lord, send some millionaire who sees how worthy I am and sends their servant to give us that wonderful envelope. Or Lord, please let the publisher's clearinghouse van come to our house today. This was not the kind of prayer life I wanted to have. This is not the kind of prayer life I should have. But it was not just at home that I was, I was out of control. I frankly was like this in my work life too. Our spending here at the church had grown by leaps and bounds, especially in the first years of my tenure here. I had a hundred reasons why this should be so, why we needed to spend more and more money on all of the good purposes of God. And then when giving suddenly very precipitously dropped off one year, about seven years ago now, the crisis was, was terrible. It was draconian. I will never forget the come-to-Jesus conversation I had with the trustees over this. They had with me, I should say. It was embarrassing. It was uncomfortable. It was agonizing in a way. But it was also the beginning of a new era in the stewardship of resources for me here at church and back at home. For many years since that time, we have kept our expenses here at the church always below the income stream that God has so graciously provided us 
with through this congregation. We've had to make some very hard choices at times to tighten our belt, to live within our means. Uh, We have had to forego in many cases uh, some of the things that we wanted to do simply because the resources were not yet clearly banked. For years, I've wanted to replace the projection system that uh, gets harder and harder for my old eyes to see. It's been around for a very long time now. I've wanted to replace it with a sharp, new, clearer system. I can rationalize six ways to Sunday why this should be done now. But the truth is, until money for it is actually in hand, it makes no sense to do that. And we're going to be just fine with the system that we have. Today, our debt-to-asset ratio is one of the lowest in the entire history of Christ Church of Oakbrook. We've got some modest reserves now. Uh, We have a plan in place to build an emergency fund so that when big storms hit, we can keep our core ministries going strong without panic. At home, our patterns have changed some as well. To cover education costs for our kids, we made the very tough choice for Amy to go back to school and then to get a job. Our furniture is is beaten up. We've got three boys. They've got friends. It's a little roughshod, but we're definitely doing just fine. We're not at risk of winning the Community Landscaping Award at the Meyer House. The vacations that we take now are on the strength of our savings or with the help of gracious other people and often of that station wagon kind of which memories get made and fighting children get left at rest stops. Uh, Amy, whatever happened to Hermie? Do you remember what that little boy Hermie? Yeah. We shop uh, a lot differently today than we did before. Uh, we've had to cut out things that we used to think we needed to have. We eat out less. We mainly use one credit card now, and it's the kind of card you have to pay off at the end of each month. Before it tempts us, money goes out of our account now into pots for giving and for saving and for retirement and for education, we are far from suffering, frankly, in spite of all this. The people of this church have been incredibly uh, good and gracious to us, and we certainly have got more work to do to get our financial house in the kind of shape that I really want it to be in. But life today, at least for us, and I think here at the church, feels a lot more sane when it comes to money matters. Now, I tell you all of this, Not because I think I'm a particularly great example. I have not been a particularly great example. I'm opening up to you on this subject for two reasons. First, to say that people can change. They can change. And secondly, because some listening to me today need to. Some of us need to keep making changes. Did you know that 60% of people in marital counseling are there citing financial woes as one of the major problems in their relationship, one of the major contributors to the anxiety and tension and combat going on in their relationship? 40% of all households say that they outspend their income monthly. Every month, They're out over their ski tips, spending more than they've got coming in. 40% of American households pay more than $2,000 in interest. I'm not talking about mortgage interest. I mean $2,000 right down the hole in consumer debt. 
33% of churchgoers say they feel it's impossible for them to get ahead in life because they're saddled with so much debt. The average American, the average American is about three weeks away from bankruptcy, is living paycheck to paycheck, has significant monthly credit obligations, has little or no money saved, and is just depending on that next check to keep the raft afloat. The mess we got ourselves into on a national scale is a complicated situation, but it had at least some of its roots in the mess that we got ourselves into on the personal scale. And that is part of the reason why we've been talking about money matters. Because God does not want us to live in a mess. God is the God of order and of hope and of life and who cares for human well-being. To get out of the mess, the first step for some of us lies in thinking much more critically than we perhaps have before about the subject of debt. If you boil it down, there are fundamentally two kinds of debt. I know this is a simplification, but bear with me for a moment. I want to talk about two kinds of debt. The first is what I will call constructive debt. Constructive debt. Providing that you have calculated the costs of entering into this kind of debt carefully providing that you have calculated the likely returns responsibly, the Bible teaches, the Bible, Jesus himself teaches, that constructive debt can be a worthy bet. It can be a worthwhile investment. Constructive debt is defined as an investment in an asset that is very likely to appreciate or to produce income. Constructive debt is investment in an asset whose value exceeds what is owed against it. Constructive debt is investment in an asset which can and will definitely get paid off. Businesses, and even churches for that matter, routinely incur constructive debt. For example, to improve facilities, or to upgrade equipment, or, or to... Or to perform some other capital expansion. And the net effect of these kinds of investments will be to increase the productive power of that enterprise. Purchasing a home is the most familiar example of constructive debt. And it's constructive, assuming you're making a healthy down payment at the front end. That didn't happen for a lot of years here in this country, right? Assuming you're making a healthy down payment at the front end, you're buying in a market likely to rise over time, and you have a monthly payment that can fit within your budget without breaking you. That's constructive debt. Investment in education is a further example of constructive debt. Constructive debts are those that have payments that are sustainable and completable, and which will bring a return on the investment that is greater than than the initial outlay. Can we be 100% certain in every instance when we enter into those kinds of investments? No. Can we be a lot more certain than we have been in recent years about these things? Yes. And this is why, because of the volatility of markets for goods and services and even educational skills, it's why constructive debt has to be entered into with more prayer and care than became the norm in recent years. 
This is why the Apostle James cautions as he does. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or to that city. We will spend a year here. We will carry on business. We will make money. In other words, we'll just automatically do this. We'll just make money. Now listen, he says. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow, says James. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Even constructive debt needs to be entered into prayerfully and carefully. It has to be said, however, that constructive debt is not the problem. It's not usually the problem. It's not usually why people struggle financially as so many of us do. It is because we unthinkingly took on the second kind of debt, the consumer kind of debt. Consumer debt can be defined as follows. It is an investment in an asset that does not appreciate, that does not produce income. It is an investment in an asset that depreciates in value and in many cases incurs even greater costs in order to maintain it or take care of it. Consumer debt is investment in something that will probably not get paid off very rapidly and maybe not ever get paid off at the present course. A popular newspaper framed the mindset that leads to this kind of indebtedness with this particular mock prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Cuisinart to keep. I pray my stocks are on the rise. And that my analyst is wise, that all the wine I sip is white, and that my hot tub's watertight, that racquetball won't get too tough, that all my sushi's fresh enough. I pray my wireless phone still works, that my career won't lose its perks, my microwave won't radiate, my condo won't depreciate. I pray my health club doesn't close, and that my money market grows. If I go broke before I wake, I pray my Volvo they won't take. Now, it used to be that only we Californians prayed these kinds of prayers. <laughs> but in recent years, even here in the heartland, this consumptive mentality has taken over and with disastrous results. To be blunt, many of us spend money we do not have for things we do not need to impress people we don't even particularly like. We spend our resources acquiring and upgrading and accessorizing and dusting and rearranging and storing things for which we go deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. And searching for greater freedom, we tell ourselves we're searching for greater freedom, we actually become owned by the things we bought or owned by the people who helped us buy those things. Searching for greater joy, we spend our time, talent, and treasure on things that come to be a source of more work and more worry, leaving us a little bit left over to invest in the relationships or enterprises that might actually produce freedom and joy. That's the way I see it. That's the way I've lived it. And that's why I'm talking about it with you today. It's for all of these reasons that the Bible cautions us very sternly about racking up consumer debt. Proverbs, for example, bemoans the fact, and I quote, 
that the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant, slave to the lender. The Apostle Paul writes, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men again. Paul says elsewhere, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. The author of Hebrews pleads with us, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The question I want to ask this morning is when are we going to start getting mad at every one of those messages that come our way telling us we have to have more because it's going to help us? When are we going to start paying attention to that still small voice of God that whispers in us as we're pulling out the wallet, as we're fingering the plastic, as we're getting ready to click there, as we're walking down the wide aisles, the still small voice that says, don't do it. Don't buy it. You don't need it. Because you already have me. Says the Lord. One of the strongest reasons to take very active measures to get ourselves out of debt is because it will free up resources for better things. For savings amongst those things. As down on consumer debt as the Bible is, it is every bit as up on the subject of reasonable saving. The book of Proverbs reads, and I quote, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all that he has. And then later in Proverbs 21, four things are on earth are small, yet they're extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. God is asking us, at least some of us, when will you know how foolish it was to be like the grasshopper, fiddling away, fiddling away, but never saving anything? When will you know how foolish that was? And the answer is when the winter comes, when the unexpected storm hits. This is when, this is when wisdom so often settles in. I plead guilty. Now, there are limits to the savings approach. We'll talk more about that next week. But wisdom says that if we do not have three to six months worth of income stored away for emergency needs, if we don't have at least a plan to move in the direction of that kind of reserve, we're not even as smart as ants. And I, for one, want my brain to grow at least that big. How about you? God wants us to be well. He wants us to be well. And that is why if you read or recommend to your loved ones, no other book on the subject of personal finance in the next year, and let me just underline that, you may have all of this down. I may be preaching to the choir. You may be just going towards me up here. 
because you know this. You've got this. You're, you're, working, you're, you're working these healthy financial disciplines. You've been doing it all your life. But maybe you've got a, a child. Maybe you've got a grandchild that needs these principles. And that's why I want to recommend that if you get no other book into your hands or their hands, pick up a copy of Howard Dayton's wonderful book, Your Money Counts. We've stocked the bookstore with this marvelous uh, book. In addition to all kinds of other very helpful uh, principles and practices, Dayton provides in chapter 6 of this book an immensely down-to-earth 10-step plan for getting out of the debt trap and to getting on towards the saving and giving strategy. And, and we don't have time to go into all the detail on this, but I want to just whisk you through those 10 steps, if I may. We've recorded them right up here on the window for your uh, reading pleasure. First, pray. Pray for God's help to turn over a new page to start a new chapter in your management of money. Why should you pray? Because you need God's help. All of us need his help. And he specializes in turnarounds. God specializes in turnarounds, in getting people out of holes, out of pits. Just ask Joseph or Jesus. Secondly, establish a written budget. A written budget. Few people in great debt actually have a clear account of all of where all of their money is going. But tracking your spending is essential to seeing where it's going so you can know what you need to stop spending on, what you can be saving on. Thirdly, list everything you own. Make a list of everything, all your assets. There are likely assets there that could be used to reduce your indebtedness if you took stock of them. And the loss that you will incur in saying goodbye to some precious heirloom, something that you think you, is an absolute necessity, the loss you'll incur in saying bye-bye to that will pale in comparison to the joy and freedom you'll get from getting up and out of the hole of debt. Fourth, list everything you owe all of your liabilities, and the interest that you are paying on each one of those debts. This is going to help you prioritize which debt you've got to knock off first. And the answer is the highest interest one. Go after that one first. Fifth, set a debt repayment schedule for every creditor. Start by paying off the smallest debts first and then use the money that you're not paying to interest anymore to apply it to the larger debts on the list. Sixth, consider measures that you can take to earn additional income. This is a family choice. It's a difficult decision. As I said, Amy and I have gone through this one ourselves. A tough choice. You're going to have to pray that one through. But consider what measures you could take to get additional income coming into the family. But be sure that you invest any increase not in further consumption, but in knocking down that debt, that consumer debt. Resolve today that you will accumulate no new debt. Can you say that? At least to yourself. No new debt. Do you know what one of the number one activities is when people leave church on Sundays? Right to the mall. Because God has so filled us up that we just have to go buy something. What's that about? Decide no new debt. Eight, be content with what you have. Why? Why? Because you're rich. Because you're already wealthy. Because you already have material reserves that outstrip the vast majority of people who've ever lived on planet Earth. And certainly about 50,000 people here in DuPage alone. 
right? Be content with what you have. Nine, consider a radical change in your lifestyle. It is worth moving. It is worth selling your house if you can and moving. It is worth giving up something huge to escape being a debt slave. And finally, tenth, finally, don't give up. Don't give up. As one philosopher puts it, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. For there thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. I want to close by saying that one of the finest programs on television or radio these days, in my opinion, is the money program hosted by Dave Ramsey. It's on at 7 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. East Coast Time. Ramsey, as some of you know, is a committed follower of Jesus. A very committed follower of Jesus. And you may not agree with everything he says, and you don't have to. But a lot of what he says is drawn right out of the pages of the scriptures. And my favorite part of the program is where phone calls come in to the program. Where people are telling their stories. And, and they're describing how they've practiced, they've put into practice the principles that Ramsey gives. It's the same ones that you'll find in Howard Dayton's guide. Uh, they've been putting these into practice over months, and in some cases years, and they are now finally debt-free. And they literally scream with joy at what it feels like to be out from underneath that weight. But what strikes me most about these testimonies is that the sense of joy and freedom that the callers express is not simply because of not having to bench press that huge load anymore. That's not where the greatest joy and sense of freedom is coming from. The greatest joy and freedom is coming from the fact that they now have a capacity to do something else with their money. Something truly creative and influential and world-shaping with their money. Something that makes life really worth living. And it is towards that vision that we're going to move together when we return to the money, to the Bible's view on money matters as we gather here again. If you come back, 